Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. You guys are in for such a real treat. I can't tell you what a special speaker we have this evening. And because he's told me he has a full hour, I want to go ahead and get started. So I'm going to introduce him and then ask him to give the opening blessing. Our speaker this evening is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg. He serves as assigned priest in nearby St. Anthony's Shrine and Our Lady of Mount Carmel in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Father Lawrence Donahue obtained his MA in philosophy from the Catholic University of America, earned his STB and STL from the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., and completed his doctoral studies at the University of Munich, and that was in systematic theology. He is currently in his 20th year of teaching, and I hear he's just a born teacher. <laughs> Father Donahue has been a longtime weekend preacher in the Archdiocese and in Baltimore and has served as, served as assigned priest for a number of Bavarian parishes over the years. So I hope you will join me in welcoming for the first time Father Larry Donahue. Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together and giving us the grace to care enough to strengthen our intellect with your wisdom. Bless our inquiry tonight and strengthen our will that we may be attentive to whatever word you wish to give us. And we ask all this in your word, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm honored to be here tonight, and as Melanie mentioned, I will try to go as long as I can without uh, wearing out my welcome, so I will plan on quitting at 8.30, exactly. And I can do that, even if it's in the middle of a sentence, because... <laughs> and then I will start up next time for the second half of that sentence, okay? So it will not be a problem. I will jump right in with my topic, Converting the Pagans, How Christianity Baptized Greek Philosophy, by saying that I did not name this. So <laughs> I have to sort of fit my talk into this category, which I'm happy to do, because it's roughly in that part of theology, as I understand it, that we call fundamental theology, and I'll talk about that in a second. I'd like to jump right in by mentioning Aristotle, one of the giants of Greek philosophy, who spoke of the importance of making distinctions. So important that making distinctions is really equivalent with learning, with knowledge. 
and so I will be making plenty of distinctions this evening. Now, in this series, we're thinking about faith, obviously, and so this is not a philosophical talk, and I do not do it from the perspective of, say, philosophy of religions or from some indifferent point of view that looks at religious objects from a scientific perspective. I am doing this within the faith. And so my assumption here is that we are approaching these issues from the perspective of Christianity, and more particularly, Catholic Christianity. Although, if we have any of other traditions here, there's nothing that I will say today that would not probably be accepted by the major Christian traditions as well, because these are pretty fundamental matters. And they're not with respect to some of the more fine points where the traditions may disagree. Now, the first distinction I would like to make here is the distinction between doing the faith and thinking about the faith. What do we mean when we say doing the faith? Pardon my English. We use that word a lot, but in this sense, it's good. When we talk about doing the faith, we're talking about those various activities where we are directly engaging objects of faith. Examples, praying to God, attending Mass, speaking with a troubled friend, serving in a soup kitchen, supporting a political cause from a perspective of natural law or Christianity or Catholicism. So those are actions where we are directly engaging the faith. And so that's what I mean by doing the faith. But when we study, we are stepping back and we are in a reflective mode, no matter what we're studying, whether I'm studying mathematical truths or theological truths or carpentry truths. It's a reflection on it. There's a difference between reading a manual on the engine of the car and working on the engine of the car. And there's a difference between studying the Trinity and doing the Trinity, being in relationship with the Trinity in prayer. Now, that distinction then between direct activities and indirect activities means that study in general is an indirect activity. Now, we need a second distinction with respect to this indirect activity of study because we can study issues or objects directly and we can do it in a further indirect abstract way. For example, if we are talking about the faith, we can think about or talk about or read about or study the Trinity. Or we can talk about what is the meaning of such names as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another example would be, what exactly is the difference between a person and a relation in the Trinity? Now there, you're, you're involved in logical issues, you're involved in conceptual issues, you're stepping one back. So you're not dealing with the object per se, you're not talking about God or the issues of the creed, but you're talking about how to understand your understanding. So it's a further level of abstraction. And this is, again, this is not a distinction that we make simply in, in religion or in faith or in theology. We make it in any discipline. 
But certain disciplines by their very nature are what are called this second order because they're logical. And the point I want to make is that fundamental theology deals with most, most, if not all, of these second order issues. And here we're not talking about the faith objects per se. We're not dealing with God directly or church or sacraments or the, the mystery of the cross or, or Christ here. We're rather talking about such issues as influence and the church in relationship to and we also have to talk about certain issues of revelation to make sense of our topic here. And so we have to do some considerations here that are somewhat logical. Okay, so what have we said so far? We first distinguished between direct engagement with objects and indirect engagement with objects. And study is an example of indirect engagement. And then we made the further distinction that even within disciplines, we can engage them directly, such as engaging God by thinking about him, or we can do it in a logical sort of way where we're talking about how to talk about God. What does it mean to talk about a person or a relation? Or what does it mean to talk about three and one? And after I finish all those things, I then get back to God. And the point of thinking about God is then to get back to the real Lord and to be with him. So there's a certain order, a certain progression. Logic is for the sake of dealing with real subject matters. Real subject matters are for the sake then of dealing with the real realities. Okay, now, our subject matter then belongs to fundamental theology, which is not really found in the creed per se. If you divide up theology, and by theology here we mean the more formal study of our faith, if we divide it up in, it, into the various issues of the creed, you don't find yourself saying, I believe in fundamental theology, okay? Because again, it's, it's, it's reflections on these things. However, we need to use fundamental theology to talk about the various issues in the creed. For example, he sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, how can there be chairs in heaven? And how can God, who is spirit, sit on a chair? Okay, so that means then that there is metaphorical language, using metaphors in the creed, but there are other statements in the creed that are not metaphorical. Okay, so a Unitarian might say, oh, three persons in God, that's, that's beautiful, but, you know, it's not really three persons, it's just, well, you know. Okay, so they're kind of approaching that as a metaphor, but we're not. No, they're not two or four or 78 persons in the Trinity, there are three. So you see right there, we've got a problem in the creed that some statements are metaphorical and others are literal. So how do we know which is which? So we're stuck back, you see, in the work of fundamental theology. Okay, so we're clear now. We've already finished introductory remarks. <laughs> and we're 23 seconds ahead of schedule. <laughs> now, the second thing that I'd like to do is uh, to talk about the gospel, the kingdom, and the world. Now, the reason, as we start to approach our subject matter, why I named this entry point, the gospel, the kingdom, and the world, is because, again, of our 
topic, converting the pagans, how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy. Now, actually today, if I can just say right from the start, it's not on our notes per se, but I'm not even really going to get to the kernel issue of how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy until our second lecture. Today, we're not going to get much further than dealing with some introductory issues about revelation, which we have to talk about, and then the scriptural teaching on the relation of faith to the kingdom and the world, which is going to give us the setting and the background for dealing with our subject matter. So the place to begin now is to find where we are on the map. Every time I come down to Virginia from Maryland, there's an accident on 495. So <laughs> I, I've, I could have borrowed a GPS, and I, I forgot to do so. So I phoned up a friend for Google help. And uh, you know, where are you? That's where you, you start. Years ago, I was in uh, the city of Baltimore, and I was lost, and uh, walking the streets uh, late at night in not the, perhaps the best section of town. So I walked up to a person who obviously had a great night at the bar, and I said, uh, sir, can you help, help me? Um, uh, where, where is such and such a street? And he kind of looked at me dazed. He says, well, the first thing i got to figure out is where I am, okay? <laughs> so... So out of the mouths of, of drunks comes pearls of wisdom. Okay, so we have to find our coordinates here on the map. Where are we? Okay, we know that we're in fundamental theology, so we, we've, we've talked about that in a formal sort of way. But where are we now in terms of our concrete subject? The gospel, by the gospel I mean the deposit of faith, so to speak. I mean... Uh, not the entire lived Christian experience, but rather we're talking about it in, a, in an intellectual sort of way now. And we're talking about the complete deposit of faith. Now, what, that word deposit, we should think here of treasury. Okay, Think of like gold mining, and you come to this huge treasure house. Okay, So that's, what, that's the way to understand it, the, the, the deposit of faith, so that it doesn't sound so abstract, but rather sounds like something really beautiful and concrete. Now, the kingdom, by the kingdom, uh, we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. So when we talk about the Old Testament, we'll have to talk about the kingdom of God in terms of both the political, religious, and social realities of ancient Israel, of, of God's chosen people and how they were formed. But as we know, their members and some of their best members criticized the way they responded to the equivalent of the gospel back then, which was called the law. The first person to use the word gospel is Second Isaiah in chapter 52, where it first arises, that word, the good news, that in that passage of the person running on the mountains, that, that runner, how beautiful upon the mountains is, is, is the one who proclaims good news. So, so, that's where the, so the gospel, in that sense of good news, already arises in the prior covenant, but when we talk about the equivalent of the gospel, we're talking about the covenant, the covenant between God and his people. So that's, that's the kingdom uh, in terms of, of reality, which includes Israel's sinfulness and infidelity, but also in terms of the ideal by which they were moved and is recorded in the, in the scriptures and given by the law and the prophets. 
Then when we come to the New Testament, we're going to talk about, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, now by the world, we mean the world. And by the world, we mean then that context in which the gospel or the covenant and the kingdom find themselves. Okay? So, again, the gospel is for the sake of the kingdom, and the kingdom is not for the sake of the world, but rather the kingdom is in the world. Okay, now each of these realities influences the other. There's no doubt about it. The gospel clearly influences and gives us our understanding of the kingdom. And the kingdom is influenced by the world, for better and for worse. Now, if you think about the structure of the parables of Jesus, you will see that there's a reference there to the gospel and the kingdom and the world. The gospel is, is the parable. The kingdom, the kingdom of God is like, or the reign of God is like. Both translations bring out good elements of the basileia word from the Greek. And the world is always the setting in a way. Okay, so a woman loses her coins in the house. That's a very worldly experience. It can happen to a, a Catholic, to a Muslim. It can happen to a pagan. That's, that's, that the elements of the world are present in the parable. And that's why you have the like. Okay, so this, it's, it's setting the gospel in the kingdom, and the kingdom is in the world. Okay, now, what is interesting and what historians do, historians of religion, both within and without the faith, go through the different history, historical moments of Christianity, and they roughly define the interaction among the gospel, the kingdom, and the world. So, clearly, the medieval synthesis of these three looks very different from an early modern synthesis or an ancient church synthesis or a contemporary experience. Today we experience the relationship of gospel and kingdom and world in a very different way, say from someone in the 13th century. Now you can see this has nothing to do with the conclusion that we don't have uh, a, per a permanent creed or a permanent faith that rises above the centuries, okay? We know we believe in the same gospel uh, from day one. Now, that gospel has undergone a lot of development. If we, if we go through the work, we can understand it better than our predecessors in previous centuries. If we're really bright, we can do an even better job than some of the giants. They usually have an advantage over us that they're more dedicated and a lot more intelligent. So, that's okay. The, per the, 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 the person who stands on the shoulders of giant, however, can still, if he's looking pretty well, can see further than the giant, thanks to the shoulders. Okay, now, this um, threefold distinction, then, should be very helpful for giving us um, this um, approach, then, to uh, our subject matter. Now, there are three different approaches here that I mentioned in my notes, the fundamentalist, the secularist, and you might call a Christian Catholic approach uh, to the relationship of these three. Okay, By fundamentalist here, I mean it in a precise sense. I mean that those who hold that the gospel is perverted and that the kingdom is perverted, whatever it is in the world. 
Okay, so on this view, and we have representatives in the ancient church that will promote this, Christianity should not baptize Greek or Hindu or any kind of philosophy whatsoever. All philosophy is either evil or from the devil or simply a waste of time. Okay, so we need to stay on the straight and narrow. Now, that's an unrealistic point of view, and we're going to show when we look at scriptures that it's also a not a scriptural point of view. Now, the other uh, view on the other extreme will be that of, of the secularists. And these will argue that uh, with the fundamentalists that there should be a cleavage. There should be a sharp abyss here, chasm between the things of faith and the world. But not for the sake of the faith, but rather for the sake of the world. So they agree and disagree, obviously, with the fundamentalists. Now, it would seem then that the um, what right way to go would be to think in terms of an in-between position. Well, I would suggest this is the wrong way to think about the relation among the gospel, the kingdom, and the world. Because when I think of it in terms of an in-between position, what am I doing? I am letting my position be defined by extremists. And I'm imagining that somehow a safe place to be is to remain standing between two errors. And for that reason, I want to dismiss this kind of either-or thinking. Okay? And that's why even the, while these talks are roughly concerned with faith and reason, that's another polar it's another distinction that is not really coming from, from, from the Christian tradition. And so I'm not going to think in those terms. And over the course of our three lectures, I'm going to try to help you to think about these through a Trinitarian perspective instead. So we're not looking here for a moderate position in between the extremes of fundamentalism and secularism. We're rather looking at a theological perspective that articulates the right relationship between the gospel, the kingdom, and the world. Now, here's a quick argument that we will do in slower motion over a period of half an hour. Since God has created the world, the world is good. It comes from him. So the doctrine of creation, as we will see, is extremely important for our subject matter. And furthermore, God has created the world as timed, as chronological, as developmental, as sequential, one event happening after another. And so creation in the larger sense includes history, and which means that we human beings are necessarily historical. And this means that our reception of the gospel and our living in the kingdom of God is also going to be among other ways historical. And this, in fact, is what we could call the incarnational principle, the fullness of time principle, being here now principle. And our example for living the principle, of course, is the incarnate one, who in becoming this individual in this period, in this time, became historical. Many people are scandalized by the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is an historical human being. They want some kind of Renaissance, trans-historical person who wouldn't even be human. It doesn't even make sense. In his historical way of being, he is 
from the first century. He's, he's Jewish, he's Palestinian. He's from this village. He talks with this kind of accent. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation. And, and we should celebrate that. And, and we should imitate that in our own lives. Okay, so the fullness of time then, an expression from the Gospel of Luke, is the appropriate time for any human being to receive the gospel and live in the kingdom. And that includes today, January 16th, 2014. Now, everything that is is not necessarily God's will. We know that. But everything is in God's will, and he can handle it, including sin and error. And so the providential intention of God allows all of us here tonight to be here, to be thinking about the different dimensions of the gospel, the kingdom, and the world. Now, all this may sound rather theoretical, so let's look at how this is lived in practice. Can, we, can you imagine a Christendom or, a, or a, a Christianity without the Cathedral of Chartres, or maybe St. Thomas's great Summa Theologiae, or Handel's Messiah, or Michelangelo's Pietà, well, Christianity predates all of those, okay? All the great saints of antiquity never enjoyed any of those great Christian achievements which I just mentioned. And so it's a good exercise when we read history to place ourselves back in that historical moment and to forget everything that has come after that so that we can be there then. And when we do that, when we leave out what comes later, we are stepping into someone else's incarnational moment. And that's a good thing to do. Just as when a troubled friend wishes to speak to me, I don't simply blare out good news. I listen and I try to enter into his or her problem. Okay, so having said this then, we can say that we've offered then a theoretical and a practical argument for showing that the relation of the gospel and the kingdom and the world is first something we have to deal with. Secondly, there should be an interaction. And third, what we need to look for is a way of putting these three together, which is what I hope to do over the course of three lectures. I'm not solving this problem now. I'm simply identifying the three major elements that we need to bring together. Now, our threefold aim that I mentioned here in the outline, in these three talks, I'll be doing it all three lectures. So I'm not doing the first today, the second, the second time, and the third, the third. No, all three at the same time, although with different emphases. We want to inquire into the Christian borrowing of the Greek philosophical heritage, because that's our subject matter. And secondly, we want to trace the development of Christian thinking or theology that relied on this. So I will be doing that and giving concrete examples. And the third, we want to relate this issue uh, not simply to an, an interesting historical problem, but to today. Because today we have to also continue to face the issue of the gospel and the kingdom and the world. Just, just as Jesus, our founder, did in the faith, just as the ancient Israelites had to do with respect to the covenant, and just as every person who takes the faith seriously has to do ever since. Now, some of the issues here of confrontation, elements of the world to be resisted, absorption, other elements of the world to be 
accepted and included within the faith, and selection, going through a, a, a process of thinking, of discernment to ask which elements are good and which are not, is a very practical and necessary and contemporary application then of our subject matter. So what I hope to do is to equip you with a set of ideas for not resolving every last issue, but rather having the tools to go back and then to deal with these issues in your own faith. Okay, C, the revelational entry into the question. We have to say a few things about the nature of revelation in order to get clear on our subject matter, converting the pagans, how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy. Now, obviously, as I said, we're beginning and we're thinking within the faith. And our faith begins in God's revelation. He has acted first. Theology, which is sort of what we're doing here tonight, is one expression of faith. You can do other things with faith, of course. You can do the direct activities I mentioned earlier. And faith itself is rooted in the fact that it is a response to what God has done. And what God has done is to show himself, to manifest himself. And he has done this in an historical way because we are historical persons. Now, to say that God reveals himself historically does not mean that you cannot, in history, have some revelation that is permanent in some sense. For example, Pythagoras apparently discovered the Pythagorean theorem. It happened one day. He said, Eureka! And this is going to be named after me! <laughs> Did the Pythagorean theorem exist before him? Yes. But no human being perhaps knew it. But the Pythagorean theorem didn't disappear when he died. It is a permanent mathematical achievement that anybody here can retrieve right now. But don't, because we're stand, trying to stay focused with what I'm doing. <laughs> You see, my point is that eternal truths can be revealed in historical moments. There's no contradiction there. Okay, so let's now say some brief things about the nature of revelation, which are preliminaries and will equip us then with dealing with our subject matter. The original experiences of revelation are of many kinds, and we know this when we search the scriptures. There are words, plenty of them. Look at the law, for example. Uh, the law in the book of Leviticus. Many, many words. And it's a revelation of, of legislation. And legislation is communicated in words. Now, the words, of course, represent the actual legislation. But the form here, you think, well, how did this revelation ever come about? Well, it came about probably through scribal authorities in the temple writing down laws and, and through a process, a communal process, they became revered understandings that were un understood in some sense to be revealed by God. And they became part of the Torah, part of the scriptures. Actions. When you read scripture, you hear about actions. So God and Abraham have this elaborate ancient rite of the covenant where, the, where Abraham splits up two animals and walks between them and God does it too in the form of this, of this mysterious light, okay? And apparently what the scripture scholars tell us is what that means is that so may this be done to me if I violate my word. May I be split in two, okay? 
So that would be an example of an action. Now, many actions of, of revelation are humanly mediated, and some are not. Okay? The crossing of the Red Sea. Assume that you're a shepherd there, a, a pagan shepherd there on the, on the shore of the Red Sea, and you see this motley crowd trying to, uh, on the other side trying to get across. You have no idea what's going on. You see some dust in the distance. And uh, just, just exactly the way Cecil B. DeMille pointed, picture of course. And, uh, and so and all of a sudden, you, you know, the, uh, the waves start to split. And what do you say? Oh, no, another tsunami? Wow. <laughs> okay, but we read that revelatory event through the eyes of faith because, because unlike that shepherd, we have the fuller context. And if we gave that shepherd the fuller context then he too would be able to perhaps draw the conclusion that this is an act of God. Now, we have all sorts of reflections and interpretations of that event also in the Old Testament. An example is the Book of Wisdom, which reviews the ancient uh, events that occurred in Egypt and shortly thereafter, 150 years before Christ and gives them a sort of a Greek philosophical flavor. The Book of Wisdom is a, is, a, is a book very much influenced by Greek philosophy, especially Plato. By the way, his fourth uh, cardinal virtues are mentioned there. I should, mention, I should say that before we go any further. I'm sort of giving my hand away. But it's, it's a, there's a lot in there. Okay. So we have then interpretations of original experiences, but also original experiences that are recorded in the Scripture. We have, in the example of the Red Sea crossing, no human words, no human mediation, God just splitting the waters. But we also have Ezekiel, for example, who acts out these funny little things to proclaim the word of the Lord. Little act, acts, little parables in, in, in action. So, so the conclusion is, is that revelation is a many-splendored thing. God has lots of tools in his revelatory tool chest. Okay, experience is always already interpreted. What this means is that even when we read the account of the Red Sea, we have to recognize that as a human word, whoever wrote that, whether he was present at the crossing of the Red Sea or not, is interpreting it. There's no way that anybody can have a pure experience that is not interpreted in some way. This is not bad, this is good. And the reason is you get double for your money. And so what you have in the Gospels, for example, is both the original experience of what Jesus has said and done, but you also have the evangelist's particular perspective on that. Matthew is into the distinction between the old law and the new law. Mark is into the cross. Luke loves poverty, women, uh, Compassion, mercy, okay? He's, he's, those are his themes. John likes high Greek philosophy again. He likes conceptual thinking. He likes argumentative thought. So each of them is taking the original experience and adding their own enriching interpretation of it. So you see what I mean when I say we get double for your money. You say, I wish, I wish John would leave John out of it. No, that re revelation is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of scholars wasted like a century of, 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 of Christian energy 
both Protestants and then, and then the Catholics never learned from this mistake until recently, and today hardly anybody does it anymore, is trying to get back, you know, to the, uh, to the original revelation, as if somehow that's purer and better. No. Revelation is what God has given us in that diversity, in that interpretation. So we want everything that's there. Now, it's, it's useful to try to distinguish between what Jesus has said and, and John's particular slant. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is, don't think that somehow that's more revelation. You're getting you know, pure gold or silver there. Because the human interpretation of that is also revealed. That's the point I'm trying to make. So you, what, you, what, you, what I'm trying to get to here, and this is an important point, is that the structure of revelation is relational. It's both divine and human. That's the way God wants it to be. The wrong way to think about it is that God's revelation is out there, and I'm here, and I'm the recipient of it. God has included certain human beings, not you and, not you and me, but he's included certain select human beings in an earlier moment in history to be part of that revelatory experience and to be mediators of that experience. That's what we mean then when we say, that experience is always already interpreted. Now, the next thing, neither the original experience nor the reflection on the experience, neither is better than the other. They're both important, they both need each other. We can also distinguish here between the original revelation and the revelation is handed down. For example, the crossing of the Red Sea. Once upon a time, the Lord split the waters and then the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea. The event is over and gone. Okay? It's, it's, it, it, it was an original event that's now gone, but it's recorded in Scripture. So that that revelation that is handed down and that recording of it, it is also revelation. It would be a mistake to say that only the, the actual historical event was revelation. Now we got some, some text about it. No. What we want to say is that both are. Again, revelation is a many-splendored thing. We don't need to say this rather than that. It's everything. This is a good Catholic principle. Both and, or better yet, all and. Now, we said that revelation then is relational. It's including human beings. And that the human response then is included in the very meaning of revelation. And what I'd like to do now is to give an example of that by turning to Scripture, which you were supposed to do. It's a good thing to do. So let's go to Genesis, our first book here in the Bible, and see, as I believe it's in chapter 11. No, it's not. It's uh, shortly thereafter. It's the... Uh, who can find it first? I, 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 this is the only, what is it? It's the, it's the, oh, you just want to make it simple, don't you? No, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the dialogue between Abram and Abraham and God with respect to saving Sodom. Chapter 18, okay? So, you, you're familiar with this. We've, we've heard it enough on Sundays. Uh, but there's the text. Well, let's just take a quick glance at it. Let's stop in at 26, okay, verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Abraham answered, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Wilt thou destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he says, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Okay, so we, the numbers keep going down and, and Abraham keeps being fresh and, and, uh, and finally he gets the number down to, unfortunately, just a few more than, than he really needed. So when you count up Lot and his family, they didn't quite even make that low number. He, sh he should have gone a little bit further and then we'd still have Sodom. <laughs> oh, maybe, oh, on second thought. Okay. Okay, so anyway, for the sake of the ten, uh, then the Lord says, I will not destroy. Now, let's just reflect on that mom a moment here theologically, because the impression that you have from this text here in terms of revelation is that God wants to take Sodom and Gomorrah out, okay? And Abram is a nice guy, filled with compassion and mercy, and he wants to save the people in the city. Okay. So God here is the God of justice, and Abraham is the man of mercy. Now, Depending on your own particular preferences, whether you're into justice here or mercy, you're going to root for one or the other. And that's the way it's sort of set up. But that's not the, the best way to understand this passage. Because all of this is revelation. And what's the conclusion? The conclusion is, is that Abraham wins, at least uh, in the short term. And God does not take Sodom out until later. Okay, So, uh, uh, so at least he... Um, um, he, he uh, grants Abraham his, his, his will here for a moment, for a day. But if we look at this in terms of revelation, the entire event is God's will. The entire event is God's revelation, which includes both justice and mercy. And so that it's not God on one side and Abraham on the other. It's God on both sides. God representing God and Abraham representing God. And so what we learn from this passage when we think it through spiritually is that God himself, as it were, faces this conflict of working through his justice and his mercy. And, and that God's position here, in a way, transcends any simplistic justice or mercy understanding. And so we are benefited by this struggle here, this dialogue between God and Abraham to, to learn what the real problem is. On the one hand, God does not want to destroy innocent human beings. On the other, there is a sense where right has to be respected and wrong has to be punished. So that the revelation here is both. It's both human and divine. It's both God and Abraham. But the whole thing is divine. The whole thing is revelation. We don't just take our scissors and cut out the passages where God is speaking and consign Abraham's responses to part B over here as unimportant or as not really revelation or less revelation. They're just as much. So, the, the, so a passage like this then helps us to see that revelation is relational and that includes the human response. Now, let's just uh, say one or two more things here about Revelation, then we're ready to jump into Scripture. I write here that the human response is included in the very meaning of Revelation. Okay, I, we finished that. Now, theology's major concern is the work of the human spiritual power of reason. The Scriptures themselves talk abundantly about our two major powers, which is our will and our reason. St. Paul has a long 
discourse in the letter to the Romans on problems of the will, as we know. Think of that passage where he says, I, I do what I do not want to do and do not do what I should. There's this struggle in me. He's talking about human nature and the tendency to sin and the inner conflict and the will standing on both sides and, and we're a, a difficult customer to ourselves. Okay, that, Those are will issues. Those are volitional issues. But when we talk about theology, we're talking about that other great power, the power to know, the power of reason. And this major... Uh, concern then of theology means that we have to understand that it too has an important role to, to play in God's revelation. Now, as a, as a gift from God, human reason should not be understood, as I, me- as I suggested earlier, as somehow outside of revelation, as again, either or any more than we should understand the human contribution as being outside. We should understand both as included in some sense in in God's revelatory work, if we're talking about, say, Scripture. And one thing what we'll be doing then is going through Scripture very briefly and seeing how reason, this great instrument God has given us, is at work and enables us then to see why we need help for our reason from the gospel and the kingdom and yes, the world. And this will help answer the question then of baptizing Greek philosophy. Now I write here that there's a distinction here that needs to be made between reason as experience and reason as method. Reason as method should also have been in italics. I'll have to talk to my secretary about that. Okay, let's look at Psalm, if you can find Psalm 19. This is a very important uh, psalm that really is, is, in some traditions, two different psalms because it has two parts which are very, very different from each other. One through six is, is as it were, A. Seven through 14 is B. We're interested in A. Okay. And we want the very first verse. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Now this tells us that the very world that God has created in some sense, is giving us some revelation of God. St. Paul expands on this notion in Romans chapter 1, when he says that the visible things give us access to the invisible things, when he starts his long argument showing how the nations or the pagans themselves are not free from sin, because God has spoken to them through their reason and through human sinfulness, human beings have have violated their reason. But back to the, the positive here. Revelation means, among other things, using the gifts of human reason and observation and even listening and looking for God's revelation. Okay, So that shepherd there on the shore watching the Red Sea and hearing what's going on has to use his faculties here, his powers, to pick up God's revelatory work. Revelation requires that human thinking be engaged. Now, the heavens proclaim the, the glory of God This means looking for God's appearing as through a mirror darkly in the created world because we do not see him directly. We have to wait for the world to come for that experience. Right now, we see him as through a mirror darkly. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that love poem that St. Paul offers us. And then here, part two of verse one, 
the firmament shows forth the work of his hands. This means that the world appears in more or less clarity as true and good and beautiful. So what this means is that we can look at the world in two ways, if we take this verse seriously. The first part of it enables us to see God through nature. I'll say what I mean by nature in a second. But it's to see God through the world. Now, as through a mirror darkly, but my focus now is on God. It's on the light behind the translucent china I'm looking at, so to speak. But I can also look at the china. And I can say this china had to be made ultimately by God. Amazing. Okay? Through human, through human hands, which were made by God. Okay, so you can see the focus can be on the one who's behind the world or the world as revealing the one who's behind it. And we need reason to do both of those activities. So that's a very important uh, statement here that, that we need to make. Okay, so Psalm 19.1 then helps us to see what we can call reason as experience. And by experience, I mean observation, thinking about it, interacting with it, discussing it, all those things. I mean, in a broad sense. Now, there's a second use of reason which is absolutely necessary in order to receive God's revelation, and that is to, is, is to use reason as a method, as an organizing principle, as logic. Now, an example of logic we'll look at next time in, in chapter 15 of Corinthians, where St. Paul uses a, a form of argumentation which is called modus tollens. It looks like this, if A, then B. If not B, then not A. He uses that strict form of, of logic in order to establish that there's a resurrection of the dead for us. Okay. Now, that's very interesting because there, St. Paul is using reason as a logical tool in order to communicate the revelation of a, a doctrine so important that it makes its way into all the principal creeds. And I call that then reason as method. Okay, so we could say then that revelation is going to use reason in two basic senses, either as experience on the one hand or as method on the other. Okay, we only have a few minutes left, so I'd like to at least just start in our remaining five minutes uh, with the scriptural approach now to human reason. And this is admittedly a very quick trek through the material, but it's enough, I think, to help us to see what, what, what is involved. And this is the first part of our journey, which we'll continue next time, and then we'll continue also into the early church period, often called the patristic period, named after the church fathers. And then we'll look at the early medieval period, which is called the early scholastic period. And then we're going to linger some time with St. Thomas, who's able to bring these, these issues to a new clarity. And then we'll briefly conclude then with the modern period and our contemporary time. Now, the human element has a more obvious role to play in this historical journey after Scripture because God's revelation in the formal sense with a capital R, I did it your way so you can read that, okay? <laughs> Ends, the traditional formulation is with the death of the last apostle. Today we understand that to mean then with really the close of the scriptural pages. 
okay, and the, and the death of those who had direct access to Christ in his, in his incarnate hum, humanity, historical humanity. Okay, so the human element then will be, will be very obvious after that, but the point we want to make here on the basis of what we've already said is that we have to look for, and this is what we're going to be doing next, next week, first thing, is look for the human element in the scripture themselves, scriptures themselves, in God's revelation. And we'll just look at a number of examples. We'll start with the Old Testament then and move to the New even before we get to the old, however, let's look at an example of, of something in general to, to understand what I mean by an appeal to reason, okay? And what I'd like to look at here is Isaiah chapter 5, which is called the Song of the Unfruitful Vineyard. It's very interesting how Jesus' parables, in a way, um, especially the ones about the vineyard, are modeled after Isaiah's, not simply in terms of the content, vineyards and, and issues of, of, of productivity and lack of productivity, but also in terms of the actual con of the form. Because Isaiah calls it a song, and the RSV, which I'm using here from Melanie, is a, is a good, uh, faithful translation of, of the word. It, was, it, it meant song. But when you read it, it's a parable. It's an Old Testament parable. So... The influence of Isaiah on Christ is, is, is immeasurable. And here's just another example. Let's just look at it, and we'll conclude with this. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked at it for it to yield grapes, but it had yielded wild grapes. And now this is the verse I want to concentrate on, 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Now, if you just stop right there, and if I just read this to a Hindu or to a modern secular or to um, a Wicca religion activist or a Muslim, that would make perfect sense, right? From verse 1 through four, they wouldn't even know where the text came from. They, they, they might think it comes from Aesop's fables or something. Notice the appeal there to human experience and just to reasonability. God is saying, I'm just looking, isn't this reasonable? I mean, you plant a vineyard, you, you get the best crops out there, you, you do everything you're supposed to do, and you get nothing. I mean, what's wrong with this picture? And, and it's not, so the revelation here is including within it a natural human response. You'd say, you know, rip the thing up and start over. And that's exactly, you know, what the first, uh, uh, you know, answer seems to be. And, and God seems to threaten to do that, okay? I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured, and so on and so forth. So what we see here then is that, is that, is that, is that passages, and not simply passages, but Scripture itself includes within it natural human reason in terms even of a natural human response for what you would expect. That this, what I just read, could be part of the, of the gospel in terms of the Old Testament covenant. You could also understand that as kingdom language or as a worldly experience that makes, play, makes sense anywhere in the world where anybody knows anything about vineyards. Okay, so we are out of time, and that's where we will conclude. And uh, we'll, let's just read this last 
sentence here so we can say we finished page one. <laughs> the character of reason in scriptures is going to be found to be reflective experience as opposed to originating events. It's going to tend to be systematic rather than chronological or historical. It's going to tend to be reasoning rather than commanding, do this or do that. And it's going to be interested in causes as opposed to things that just happen or effects. And there are other parts of Scripture which do those other four things, and that's part of Revelation too. And that's okay. But we're not doing everything, we're doing something. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We're going to take a short break, uh, three or four minutes. For those that need to leave, you know where the door is. For those that can stay around, please do so. There's restrooms out in the hall. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. I hope you can wrap your head around this, but it has to do with conversations I've had about psychology and love and the gospel. Darwinism, um, natural selection, evolution, survival of the fittest. Um, would you consider that on the historical timeline to be revelation? And if it isn't, why hasn't our Catholic scholars baptized it? Okay, that's a, a long um, uh, topic, which is probably a little bit... By the way, you don't have to take every question you get. You're more than... I oftentimes... Okay, I'm going to try to be disciplined okay, here. Okay, all right. And say, uh, first, uh, we want to say that this is a theology talk, not philosophy, because philosophy is, is, is leaving out the perspective of the faith. Everything that I'm saying here tonight is from the perspective of the faith, okay? Secondly, um, evolution. We have to distinguish here. That this is an excellent example of a topic that we'll be much better equipped to deal with once we've finished all three lectures. But just a preliminary answer, we want to distinguish how God does things, and whether God does things or whether forces do things, okay? So there's atheistic evolution, that could be Christian evolution. God can create any sort of way he wants. He can reveal any sort of way he wants. He can have the human body be, rise from the dust of the earth over a period of millions of years, okay? Which is, when you think about it, in a way far more exciting and noble than simply God getting down there and creating some dust together, as the book of Genesis says. So exactly what that means is something that science explores. But the, the fact that God is behind it then would give us the ability to deal with that uh, from a revelational point of view. Now, the kind of revelation this is, though, is going to be with a little r and not a big r, not to make those distinctions later. We're not ready for that yet, okay? But um, wherever, one thing we're going to argue, wherever there is truth, we're going to accept it and, and embrace it. Because everything is either God or from God, ultimately, except error and sin. So there's no, no reason to be afraid. Okay? Good. But that's, that's the short answer to a very long and, and, and involved question. And also many Catholic and Christian theologians have been working on these, these problems for a number of years. Okay, a second uh, over here. Uh, Father, yeah. does or did Christianity need Greek philosophy in its development and things like that? Uh, very good. In God's, some argue that in God's providence, the Greek philosophy happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And uh, I'm, I, I would say uh, yes, in the divine uh, 
providence of things. And there's, I'll show you the next time there's plenty of, of Greek philosophy in the later Old Testament and in the New Testament. So uh, we will see much of that at work. And also other philosophy, Roman philosophy, Stoic philosophy. There are, there are a number of philosophical strains. There, there was lots of things going on in the first century uh, in uh, the formation of, 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 in the world at the time when, when the scriptures of the New Testament were being formed. So that, that's why we want to say more than Greek philosophy. We want to say philosophy in general. Uh, but the answer would be, I think, I think yes, but that's, that's something that reasonable people can disagree with. I think it is safe to say that the, God, the scriptures as we have them and the faith as we have them would have a very, very different uh, shape if Greek philosophy uh, especially uh, never existed. Could you have a gospel without Greek philosophy? Yes, it would look very, very different. Father, um, you said experience is always already interpreted. And I know there are some historic historians now who say, oh, well, there is no truth because what's my truth is different from what's your truth. And so it seems like a sentence that uh, people have, some people, the academics have taken to kind of destroy truth itself, the concept. Truth, like revelation, is always relational. You know who I learned that from? Not from some wacko contemporary thinker, but from St. Thomas. Summa Theologiae, Prima Pars, chapter, uh, question 16, article 1, where he talks about truth as a relation between the world and an intellect. If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the truth in itself. Truth is always for a person, whether divine, angelic, or human, so that it's always a relation. And so the way that we access and do the world intellectually is going to be in a human way, not a divine way and not an angelic way. And I interpret the, and receive the world, I should say I receive the world as a human being. Okay, just as you do. On this, you, there's no difference between the way your intellect works and my works. But everything that, that is said, okay, um, Jack jumped over the candlestick, two plus two is four, okay, God is love, you and I hear that in different ways because you're female, I'm male. You're 20 years younger than I am, I've lived longer and lived a much, you know, more... I've been through a lot more than you have, perhaps. I'm just saying that. Um, you, uh, you have perhaps um, uh, been a much better lover than I, and so God is love is going to read very differently from you. You might be a PhD in mathematics, and you might say, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4 doesn't, is not true in base 3, and most people don't think in those terms, and on and on and on. So that... Whatever truth we receive, we don't simply receive it as human beings, but we receive it as, you know, uh, Jack and Sue and Mike and, 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 and uh, Mary, okay? So, uh, so truth is, is, but that doesn't mean that, that we're not receiving the truth at the same time, but we are receiving the truth in our particular way. First is human, as opposed to God and angels, and secondly, as this individual that I am. And, and that's... that's that's it's natural. It's it's obvious. It's commonsensical, and it's good. Okay. Thank you very much, Father. Okay. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.